Heavenly Father, as we hear your word, our hearts break with Job's. And there are many who can say, that's my story, even today. In the midst of the darkness, give us light. In the midst of the pain, give us peace. And may we see Jesus Christ. We pray in his wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen. I think most everyone loves Tevia. He is indeed that main character of Fiddler on the Roof, the well-known Broadway musical, the film made in 1991. Here is this guy living in Tsarist Russia, 1905, and as a Jew under much persecution. To make matters worse, he says, God has plagued, not plague, he doesn't use the word plague, comes close to it. God has given him five daughters. And poverty. And so he has this ongoing conversation with God as life continues to throw him curves. And he's beaten down in all that happens. In one scene, about an hour into the film, he is rejoicing with his friends because his daughter, his eldest daughter, is going to be married. And as he makes his way home, a bit drunk at that point in time, uh, the constable who is one of the Russians controlling the area, says there's going to be a little disturbance in the town, a little demonstration to show that we're in control. Tevye doesn't know exactly what it is, but he goes to the Lord in prayer, and this is what he says. Dear God, do you have to send me news like this today, of all days? I know, I know, we are your chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? <laughs> and you and I say the same thing about our lives filled with adversity and difficulty and challenge. And we say, Lord, why us? Can't you choose someone else to deal with? And the book of Job, like the life of Tevia is one with constant challenges, and he must learn to turn to the Lord. The book of Job is not so much about how do you suffer. The book of Job is how do you suffer when you really haven't done anything to deserve it. Or even beyond that, what do you do when you're suffering for something that you didn't do and God is absent? That makes matters even worse. So I want you to open up your Bibles as we continue our study in the book of Job to chapter 3, the portion that Catherine so wonderfully read just a moment ago. And here in the book of Job, we have a chapter of curses and questions. I think maybe a good title for this chapter is Learning to Lament. Job is going to teach us something about this Wonderful Christian response that you and I often want to avoid. But it is part and parcel of the Christian life in this world. We need to learn to lament. Ask Jeremiah. Ask David. Ask Hosea. Ask any person of God. Life 
the life of faith in this fallen world is a life of frustration and often a life of lament. So learning to lament, what does Job say about lamenting? Well, we, we remember that Job had some horrible tragedies, right? In chapter 1, he lost all of his possessions, including his family, except for his wife. In chapter 2, he loses his health. Satan is behind all of this, seeking to prove that once Job loses all of his physical supports, health and wealth, that he will curse God to God's face. But Job doesn't do it. Job's good friends hear about this situation and travel what appears to be a, a rather long distance, having agreed to meet and come and support their dear friend. And when they arrive, end of chapter 2, they sit in the dust, the ash heap, where Job is now living, that is the city dump outside of the city limits where they burn the trash. And there Job is scraping his body to relieve his pain using a broken piece of pottery. And his friends sit down with him for a week. <laughs> they say nothing. By the way, that was their shining hour <laughs> when they said nothing because once they opened their mouths, they caused Job all kinds of problems. But after a week, has it been a week? Has it been longer? I mean, the last words we heard from Job were sterling. They were the paragon of perfection. When Job lost all of his possessions, he simply said, naked I came from the womb, naked I'm going back. I praise the Lord. In chapter 2, when his wife wanted him to curse God, his response was, shall we not accept good and trouble from the Lord? In all, in all of this, Job did not sin. His last words were great, but now his words in this chapter appear to many believers to be shocking. He's going to teach us how to lament. After seven days, maybe it's after two weeks, after a long period of time, Job has now been beaten down. He's been living with this pain and despair, and he opens his mouth, and he curses the day he was born. Now notice he doesn't curse God like Satan wanted. He doesn't curse God like his wife encouraged. He curses the day he was born. By the way, we go from... Prose, in the first two chapters, narrative, genre, literary style, to poetry. From chapter 3, really all the way down to chapter 42, to the end of the book, is highly poetical. And it's poetry that gives emotion such power of expression. Thomas Carlyle, one of the literary giants of the English world said this is some of the greatest poetry ever written. And it touches us where we live. So he curses the day of his birth, not his God. He says, may that day perish. And the night it was said that a boy was born, may we lose that day altogether. In the next verse, we read, that day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care for it. In other words, may the one who created the day no longer look after the day. May he make sure that the light doesn't even shine on it. 
And then he adds some very interesting things. He says, may darkness and a deep shadow cover it. This is the same word, same phrase that you find in Psalm 23. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Kill the day. May the deep shadow of death overcome it. And then he says, may the darkness claim it once more. That's a reference to creation. How were the days created? Out of darkness, God said, let there be light. And he made the day, the uh, evening and the morning, the first day, the evening and the morning, the second day. The day actually begins with the evening. But now he wants the darkness to reclaim it. And a black, utter darkness. Job uses five different words for darkness to curse the day of his birth. And here's a total eclipse. May it just come over the day and may it be totally covered in darkness. Then he goes on to say, may thick darkness seize it and may it not be included in the calendar anymore. Rip it from the days of the year. Make it like February 29th other than leap year. A day that doesn't even exist. And no one can count the day. And may the day be childless. I was born on that day, but may the day not exist. May a baby never again be born. May there be no shout of joy. It's a boy. You say, Job, (laughs) you're going a little overboard. Have you ever been this broken? If you haven't yet, you will be. Job goes on to say that those who curse days, may they pick this day out to be cursed. And those who rouse Leviathan. Now here's an interesting statement in poetry. Leviathan is a sea creature that comes out of Canaanite mythology it actually has seven heads and it is the dragon who threatens chaos now I don't believe it's a real creature I'm not saying God didn't create dinosaurs but I don't think that's what he's referring to here I'm not saying that there aren't there aren't some mighty sea creatures that we've never even discovered in the depths of the sea indeed that is the case but Leviathan was created by the Canaanites as one who threatens the calm of the world and Leviathan is killed by Baal their God you say well why then would Job bring up such a mythical creature Well, it's because everyone knows about Leviathan and that he symbolizes this idea of destruction. He's the one who comes and seeks to uh, disrupt the plan of God. He's going to be mentioned again in chapter 41. He's mentioned twice in the book of Psalms and also in the book of Isaiah. But it, it would be like me saying something like this, that that person was reformed and changed just like Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, when I say that, you don't believe that I believe that Scrooge is real. But you know the story so well that it makes sense for me to use it. And that's what Job is doing when he brings up a mythical creature that everyone is familiar with. Let those who rouse Leviathan to do his horrible work, may that day receive his activity. May the morning stars, probably referring to the planets that come out before dawn, Mercury and Venus. May the morning stars become dark 
And may that day wait in vain for the first rays of dawn. A beautiful Hebrew expression that means the eyelids of dawn. Like the day's opening its eyelids. Like you and I open our eyelids to wake up in the morning. So may that day not see any of the early morning rays. And then finally he says... Because that day did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide me from all these troubles so that I wouldn't see trouble. By the way, Hebrew scholars say this is some of the most difficult Hebrew to translate in all of the Bible. Because the metaphors sometimes clash. The NIV translation that we have just read smooths it out so we can understand it. But in the original Hebrew, there seems to be almost a cacophony, almost a discordant sound in the midst of the poetry. And here, you even have terms that speak of of the biology of birth not happening, the womb being stoned so that there is no birth and the doors being shut so no baby is born. Been there? Curse the day. Job is saying, I wish I never would have been born. I wish I wasn't alive. That's how bad. This is the guy who just said a few days ago, naked I came from the womb and naked I'm going to return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Praise be his name. That's what we ought to say. But sometimes you're so beaten down, this is what you must say and we are startled and we are shocked that God would put something like this in the holy word of God you might be saying I didn't know I could talk to God like that let me remind you that he's not cursing God but he's pouring out his heart to God have you ever read first Peter 5 7 casting all your Care upon him, all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. How much of your care? Just the acceptable ones, just the appropriate ones. (laughs) No, all of it. And when do you cast your care upon God? When you are filled with care. It's the Apostle Paul who says in Philippians chapter 4 that we should be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication. What is prayer and supplication? Crying out to God. We don't understand that sometimes things are so desperate that you cannot hold back. You cannot be appropriate. Or what people think is appropriate. You just start weeping and crying. Have you ever done that? I have. And sometimes I can't, I can't even form the words. There's a sigh. There's a groan. There's a cry. And God says that's okay. Because I want you to pour out your heart to me. Sometimes pain causes us to run away from God... Pain is actually designed to cause us to run to God. And that's the teaching of lament. Express your deepest pain. Bring your troubling thoughts to him. 
Don't be emotionally detached and cold. Now, Job has a lot of questions about God. And although he doesn't curse God, he comes very close to wondering if God even exists. And that is the experience of the real Christian. For he goes on. Job doesn't just stop with the cursing of the day of his birth. Now he mentions four different questions aimed at the Lord himself. Questions that talk about God's goodness. Here's question number one. Why did I not perish at birth? And die like a stillborn child from the womb. Why were there knees to receive me and breasts to nurse me? It was the practice in that day to have a midwife. And maybe the knees refer to the midwife who catches the child. Or it may be the practice that the child was put on the knees of the mother as she would begin, as the child would begin to be nursed by its mother. But the whole point is... Why did I even have a mother who would be there to help me? Because if I didn't, if I was still born and had no mother, then I would be lying down in peace and I would be asleep and all would be at rest. And now Job begins to reveal that his theology is rather confused and clouded by his pain. And that's often what happens in the midst of our lament. We forget who God is because pain and feeling overwhelm us. While it is okay to pour out our pain to God, we must never forget who God is. Now Job's not going to get there in chapter 3, which reminds me to say sometimes you won't get there in a day or two. Sometimes your lamenting will go on for a very long time. Death does not bring rest and sleep. The Old Testament view of the afterlife was rather fuzzy. It wasn't finally developed as it will be after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's not going to offer peace. And it's not going to offer sleep and rest. Job says in death, that's where the kings and the prime ministers, the counselors and the rulers are. Who once had wonderful power and now they're at rest and they don't have to worry about protecting all of the things that they own. That's where the wicked now cease to do their wicked deeds. They're, they're, they're ceasing from the turmoil they created. And that's where the weary can find rest. So the wealthy and the wicked and the weary all find in death this wonderful release. The captive doesn't have to, have to answer to the slave master's shout and command. Both small and great, rich and poor, famous and unknown, find a freedom and release in death. And basically Job is saying, that's what I want. So why do I keep on living in misery. Why do those whose life is miserable and have nothing but bitterness of soul keep living? Have you dealt with elderly parents who have some horrible diseases? Does not this question come up? Why am I still here? Why do I still exist? 
Why do I have to keep going day after day after day? By the way, in all of this, Job never suggests suicide. Although he would like to die, he knows that that's under God's control. But in essence, he's saying, Lord, take my life. That's what Elijah said. The mighty prophet. And so many others who got to this bitterness of soul that they simply wanted to end life. For those who long for death and it doesn't come, they're searching for it more than one would search for hidden treasure. And when they find it, they're glad and they rejoice, which is the exact opposite because we are so designed and created for self-preservation. Not to rejoice when the end of our time comes unless life is so miserable that death seems like a step up. That's how bad Job is. Why is this book in the Bible? Because this is real life. <laughs> Why are there 42 chapters? Because sometimes this goes on for a very long time. And so Job says, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden? And get this, whom God has Hedged in. Have you ever heard that word hedge in the book of Job? Well, was that not exactly what Satan said in chapter 1? God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He's a just, righteous man, upright, shuns evil. And Satan says, well, of course, you've put a hedge of protection around him. By the way, the imagery here is the type of stone hedge... Uh, actually a sheep corral that shepherds would build and they would stick between the stones thorny bushes. And they did that for two reasons. So the enemies could not just climb the fence. Have you ever seen a fence like in a prison with barbed wire? Same idea. So the enemies can't come in because of the thorns. But guess what, what happens? If the enemies can't get in, the sheep can't get out. And what God designed for protection, now Job sees as confinement. This God who made me, who's supposed to be blessing me, has now put me into a corral of thorny bushes, and I'm miserable in here and can't get out. So we began to think of God other than he is great and good. And we think of him as distant and unconcerned. He cares for me. I don't see it. I'm hedged in. I'm trapped in tragedy. And there's no way out. So chapter 3 ends in despair. There are two psalms. I think it is... 88 and 89, maybe 87 and 88. 88, Psalm 88 is the one psalm that has nothing good to say in the whole thing. And it sounds like Job chapter 3. So what does his despair sound like? Well, sighing is my daily food. And groaning comes out of me like a faucet turned on and water pouring out. Continuous. That which I feared, the old authorized translation, that which I greatly feared has come upon me. The thing that I dread 
has now happened to me. What did he dread? I can only think of two things. One would be that he lived, like many of us live, with the fear of some great catastrophe happening to us. And now he says, that which I feared has happened to me. But I think it's something greater. Remember when Job used to go and make sacrifices for his kids, lest in their times of feasting they might curse God? Remember that? I think Job's greatest concern, and now today his greatest lament, was that he might lose God. That he might lose fellowship with God. Now, we have many promises in the Bible that say God will never leave us nor forsake us. And those are true. I don't doubt them at all. I just know in my experience and in the experience of far greater saints, they know what it is to live life without the smile of God and the presence of God and the sense of God. So maybe Job's greatest fear all along was that somehow I might become distant and lose my best friend. I think that's the tragedy of the book. I think Job's argument all along is not so much for the possessions he's lost, but for the God, the fellowship that he used to enjoy that is now gone. And these last few words are like four stabs from a knife. I have no peace. I have no quietness. I have no rest. Life is just a mess. By the way, the very things he thinks death is going to bring to him are the very things he says he does not now have. So in other words, Job says, I just might as well die. Now this portion of scripture is not saying that that's where lament should end. We're not done yet. When you get to chapter three, uh, 23 of the book of Job, verse 10, the key verse, has this idea of, after he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold, right? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job's going to work through that, but he's not here yet. And I think one of the best ways to illustrate it is with a pair of binoculars. Remember as a kid being given a pair of binoculars for the first time, and you're trying to, of course, figure them out. And binoculars are designed to make something distant look closer. But you grab the binoculars and look through the big end, and the object looks extremely small. You flip it around, look through the narrow end, and the object looks much bigger. That's the way it's supposed to be. I think many of us look through a pair of binoculars at God, but we look through the wrong end and we diminish God. If you think of binoculars, think of one end as feeling and the other end as faith. We look through the end of the binoculars, the feeling end, the big end that dominates us, and we see God diminished and smaller than he is, and as though he's no way going to help us in the midst of this situation. God is distant and aloof. But if we turn the binoculars around and look through the end of faith, 
based on the truth of Scripture, which never changes. Your feelings will always change. Faith never does. Look at God through his word. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Is it okay to ask God why questions? Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, what's the rest of it? Why? Why have you forsaken me? Why? Jesus said that and forever approves the pouring of your heart out to God. Again, I'm not saying that when we learn to lament, we ought to say, this is really cool. I should live in lament. I should constantly be, you know, the person who brings the cloud to every party. You guys may be having fun, but just remember, we're all sinners and we're about ready to die. And, you know, the world is filled with horrible things. I mean, you can live in the cloud like Pigpen did in the Charlie Brown cartoon everywhere he went. There was a little cloud. And we have people who do that everywhere they go. They bring this little cloud. If you think you're having fun, wait till I get there. And I'll pull you back to reality. But on the other hand, we are to weep with those who weep. And there are people in our congregation who are undergoing Job-like days right now. And I have nothing to say to them to explain why. Except God is great. And God is good. And look at him through the binoculars of faith and the word of God. And someday it will make sense. Maybe not until the final day. So here his despair is seen in when he says, My food is grief. My fear has been realized. My frustration. Life is a mess. Life is chaos. I'm experiencing that all the time. But let me go to David to teach us a little bit about lament. Psalm 42 is a great psalm of lament. That's where David says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for God. Where is God? Where can I find the living God? Everyone is saying saying to me, where is your God? David's in despair. In Psalm 42, verse 9, David says, God, you are my rock. That's looking through the binoculars from faith. But then he says, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? But then David says this. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Say that with me. Put your hope in God. Lamenting is fighting for hope. And you and I must be weaned from the things of this world, like self and possessions and pride, and fame, and money, glory, all of those things. And God weans us from the things of this world through trials so that we might run to him. Put your hope in God, for you will yet praise him. 
He is your Savior, and He is your Sovereign. And so David ends the hymn with a note of praise. This has been a chapter that has caused me a lot of consternation this week. As I've thought about some of you, some of my dear friends who are going through it, and some situations I face, nothing Job-like, but And God says, Don, you, you need to learn to lament and to weep and come out with faith and hope. For our God is a good and great and sovereign God, and he will get the glory. And that's why you and I exist. Sing with me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Just before we dismiss, let me read another hymn from that same author. Well, actually, it's a different author. Isaac Watts. How long wilt thou conceal thy face, my God? How long delay... When shall I feel those heavenly rays that chase my fears away? How long shall my poor laboring soul wrestle and toil in vain? Your word can all my foes control and ease my raging pain. Let's go to the word of God for hope. Heavenly Father, help us to see that lamenting is all right. Pouring out our soul with honest emotion and grief is what your people have done through every age. But in the end, we come back to you, the good God who does all things well. In the end of Job, we come back to you, and you speak, and Job says, I thought I knew you before, but I have only heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Now my eye sees you. And I bow before you. May that be the story of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.